um, Dr. Claire Hampson. Uh, she returns by strong demand from the first laboratory where she told of the, the ungodly dedication of Mary and George Papanicolaou in developing the cervical smear. Um, she also thinks, she's not sure, but she might have discovered a new cyst that looks like peanut butter. She had a very visceral reaction to the cyst. Looks like, this is in the, in the role of a uh, pathology trainee, I should qualify, but looks like peanut butter, smells like old socks and maggots sitting in a bay-marie. Claire Hampson. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was trying to garner uh, sympathy um, by describing a day at work which involved cutting open ovary and finding peanut butter inside. Um, yeah, do you feel sorry for me now? This is what I, this is what I live with, people. All right. So, um, over the last few weeks, we've had some really fantastic talks about science heroes, about the people who um, have been passionate and changed the world and done wonderful things and... The last talk was like, what an amazing guy. <laughs> I mean, um, but I wanted to talk about a slightly different story. My story is about a man whose promising scientific, scientific career was crushed by crime, actually by a series of crimes, which is still horrifying people today. I'm going to present the facts as they've been presented to me, and it's up to you here tonight to decide whether this man is a science hero, a science villain, or a science victim of circumstance, <laughs> such a thing. He is a Scottish anatomist by the name of Dr. Robert Knox, or Dr. Robert Knox. <laughs> he was born in the late 18th century in Edinburgh from a respectable family, and notably, he was ugly. It was once written that he was as ugly as Jack Wilkes. Am I right? <laughs> Do you guys actually get that? No, I think it's been lost somewhere in the last 200 years. They're <laughs> laughing anyway. Um, <laughs> but to give you a picture, Knox had lost an eye in childhood from smallpox and had pitting and scarring over one half of his face. So we're kind of talking a bit like Dr. Evil, but with hair. Despite this disfigurement, uh, Knox was a very bright spark. Um, he was the top of his high school class, went to med school and blew them away with exceptional Latin and anatomy skills. After graduating, he left briefly to serve in the army before returning to Edinburgh around 1825. So just to orient you to 1825, we're talking Beethoven. Actual, not the dog. <laughs> we're a bit after Jane Austen, but a bit before Charles Dickens. And in the anatomy department at the University of Edinburgh, we're right in the time of the Monroe dynasty. The grandfather, Monroe Primus, had secured the role of anatomy professor about 100 years ago and had also managed to secure it for his son and his grandson coming after him. We were now up to Monroe Tertius, and he held the position of ultimate power in the department. The truth is, after three generations, the lectures are getting pretty stale. So there were a series of other lecturers in Edinburgh who were accredited by the uni, and Knox became one of those, private tutors. There was fierce competition for the medical students who were drawn there by Edinburgh's strong reputation. Luckily, Knox was brilliant. He didn't need notes, he just stood there and spoke. Students attended his lectures in droves. At one point, almost two-thirds of the university was attending his lectures, packing out the house. He inspired such men as Richard Owen, the man who would go on to invent the word dinosaur. <laughs> Amazing. But no anatomy teacher was worth his stripes without the demonstration of dissection. Knox needed to dissect for teaching and for research. 
get publications to break into Monroe's club and ascend to that elusive university chair. Knox needed bodies. But back then, there were only two ways to get bodies, legally. The first was the death of a convicted criminal. Um, dissection was a perfectly acceptable way of disposing of the body, um, giving the society the benefit of it, and frankly, punishing them a little bit more for what they'd done. <laughs> the second was from the death of a person in a poorhouse. Uh, because they kind of thought that because the state had supported them for their lives, they kind of owed them something so they could donate their body to science <laughs> and, you know, that could repay the debt. And I'm not saying that was right, uh, but that's how it was. <laughs> Unfortunately, these two events were few and far between and legal bodies were scarce. So if any of these bodies did show up if, along these, these methods, Knox would get, I mean, sorry, Monroe would get them anyway. He was the king. So in response to this mismatch of supply and demand, the practice of grave robbing emerged. It was a depraved activity undertaken by desperate professional thieves, low lives and anatomists. <laughs> Often with a group of their keenest medical students trotting along behind them. <laughs> so A-type, even back then. It was abhorrent and it was dangerous and it was thriving. There's no evidence that Knox himself ever went out looking for bodies to the graveyards, but it was known that if, perchance, a body should arrive at his rooms, he, like most others at the time, would receive them, pay for them, and not ask who or how. Meanwhile, on the other side of the city, the poor side, William Hare and William Burke had stumbled across a problem. Well, multiple problems. Being impoverished, lower class and Irish, on the one side, and number two was a man named Donald who was staying in William Hare's rooming house and unexpectedly died of natural causes two days ago before paying the bill. Rude. <laughs> and now William Hare had a body to dispose of, which was difficult, inconvenient, and cost him even more money. And he wondered if there was a better way. So his friend William Burke, his very good friend William Burke, helped him with a solution. Pre-empting Indiana Jones by 156 years, they opened the coffin, replaced the body with a similar weight of tanning leather, shut it again, and then sent it off to the funeral. They then headed off to the university, avoiding all the shooting arrows and rolling boulders, obviously. <laughs> and then they're looking for Monroe, you know, giving Monroe the body. But he'd already gone home, and they were directed to the rooms of a certain Dr Knox. He examined and approved of the specimen they provided, and his assistant paid them the very nice sum of £7.10 shillings unaware that this was far less than a Scottish person would have got for the same body, they were overjoyed. And with a cadaver to dissect at a bargain price, the staff of Dr Knox were equally delighted. At this point, mind you, Burke and Hare hadn't actually done anything wrong. Legally, their only obligation was actually to adequately dispose of the body of Donald, um, to not leave it in the street, essentially. Um, but it's clear that they did feel a bit wrong. And this is my absolute favourite part of the story, is that they tried to give fake names um, when they went to the uh, assistant. And, I, and it played out a little bit like this. And you, sir, are... Don't say William, don't say William, don't say William, don't say William. John! Fine. And your friend is... Don't say William, don't say William, don't say William. William! Oh! <laughs> Oh, what are you going to do a thing like that for? Oh, no. William, you gobshite. You'll not be doing any more of the talking. Shh. So John and William 
not clever men, um, entered the transaction. And they, as they left the um, surgeon's rooms, they were told, and I quote, that the surgeon would be glad to see them whenever they had any other body to dispose of. Some of you know where this is going. <laughs> um, yeah, not such a great thing to say to these two men because they found another body to dispose of. Only this one wasn't dead. <laughs> um, he was a man staying in Hare's house and he was very unwell. He was close to dead and perhaps they thought this was close enough to mercy. Burke laid on top of him, compressing his ribcage while Hare smothered his face with a pillow until he stopped moving. He was delivered to the rooms no questions were asked. Money paid. It was far too easy. Next, Burke's de facto Helen and Hare's wife helped to lure a young woman to their home. Burke and Hare plied her with whiskey, smothered her to death and took her body to Knox. <laughs> then the group started targeting travellers, people without local connections, a passing Englishman, an old woman, three young women, a grandmother, a grandson who came looking for her, more women, old and young, even a disabled teenager. This isn't funny, this is true! <laughs> 15 murders in all, all the same. It had been nearly a year of this when, by chance, a couple who had been evicted from their rooming house the night before returned to pick up their stuff and found a body of the woman who they'd drunk with the night before concealed under the bed. Um, they immediately went to the police, but they were too late to discover the body in Burke and Hare's, uh, sorry, in Hare's house, but they attended Dr Knox's dissecting rooms and discovered the awful, awful truth. The public, understandably, reacted with an enormous backlash against Burke, Hare and Knox. Knox was depicted as the learned carcass butcher in the papers, even facing a burning effigy in the streets. He maintained his composure and statements of innocence to his students. Um, he was known to have said, the connection of my establishment with the late atrocities, however accidental, is a very serious misfortune, in so much that, although utterly unconscious at the time of anything wrong having been done, Yet the very recollection of these shocking occurrences must be ever painful to me. He was even backed up by Burke, who swore that Knox never suspected or knew. There was a full investigation into Knox's involvement, concluding that there was no evidence that Dr Knox or his assistants knew that murder was committed in procuring any of the subjects brought to his rooms and firmly believed in his complete innocence. Utterly unconscious. I don't know, do you believe him? In his defence... He wasn't um, forensically trained and he wasn't really examining for injuries or a cause of death when he was um, dissecting these cases. Um, and if you, if you weren't looking for a cause of death, the fact that 15 people had shown up without a reasonable cause of death probably wouldn't have attracted uh, your attention. But 15! <laughs> I mean, come on! Oh, all from the same guys, all with no obvious illness, and so fresh. I mean, some of these guys would have been warm. Oh, no, Scotland. Some of them would have been, like, tepid, slightly lukish. I mean, they clearly weren't getting them from graves, and it's very unlikely that Burke and Hare had that many sick relatives. I mean, Knox is a smart guy. Why didn't he ask the question? How were John and William coming across so many deceased? Should he have tried to find out? Or did he wonder? deep down, but fear the answer to the question so much he couldn't even voice it? Or was he so blinded by ambition he couldn't even see? Despite being cleared, the damage was done. Knox kept teaching, but never received the post at the university that he so desired. 
In his later years, he turned towards comparative human, human and animal anatomy and wrote, by all accounts, a fantastic paper on salmon and herring. <laughs> he was a supporter of Darwin. He also moved into the field of anthropology and um, unfortunately made a few nasty racial generalizations with a very dubious relationship to the anatomy that he was basing them on. Um, he's copped a bit of flack recently for that. But he also wrote some very lovely books on art. <laughs> By the time of his death, at age 71, Knox was a very well-known man. And in case you're wondering, he was buried whole. <laughs> Unlike William Burke, who was convicted for murder, hung and dissected by none other than Bertha Monroe. He wins. He wins. He wins. Every time. And I shouldn't, but I can't help feeling a sense of justice that Burke's skeleton and death mask are currently on display at the University of Edinburgh's Anatomy Museum for all to see. William Hare and his wife weren't convicted as they had flipped and given evidence against Burke, but they were chased from place to place by an outraged public and required multiple secret relocations by police. Similarly, Burke's de facto Helen was chased around and it's rumoured that she made her way here, all the way to Australia. <laughs> Don't worry, she'd be dead by now. <laughs> or would she? <laughs> no, she definitely is. So now it's time for your choice. I borrow a phrase from Pennsylvania Press when I ask you, how will you remember this man of science? Dr. Robert Knox, a gifted speaker and scholar the boy who buys the beef, a villain or a fool? <laughs>